0: and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it much love and appreciation for your support much love thank you what's up everybody welcome back to another episode of the mark groves podcast before I get into introducing this week's guest, which let me tell you, this episode is pure fire. If you struggle with boundaries and you also don't know how to co-parent with boundaries or you just the subject is boundaries and man, the guest I had, she is a return guest. And that's because of the immense brilliance she shares. But before I get into talking about her, I wanted to tell you a couple things. One, if you have not done it, please subscribe to this podcast to get notified of all the episodes that pop up each week, and also if you could go to wherever you listen to this and um, give me a five-star rating. you know, Go on there, leave a written review. That's very helpful to um, bump it up and get it into people's ears so we can talk about the most important subject on the planet, connection and relationship and how to make our connections thrive. So I appreciate that. So without further ado, I am bringing back Dr. Alexandra Solomon, who is a professor at Northwestern, and she teaches marriage and family therapy. And I had the pleasure of attending the Psych Networker, which is a psychology conference in Washington, DC every year. And I hung out with her and attended a lot of amazing talks. And uh, her and I got a chance to sit down and talk about boundaries and talk about You know, we had had a lot of questions. I had had a lot of questions on my Instagram and my Facebook and my YouTube all about some things I had said about, you know, you got to set some high standards in your life and you got to have some boundaries. And people said, well, it's not that easy when you have kids. And I said, okay, well, let's talk about that. So we're just breaking it all down. And Alexandra is just a gem of a human being. She's funny. She's brilliant and relatable and she's also a parent so hey you know when i start talking about parenting people are like you don't have a kid and i'm like i don't that's true but when i do have one i'm gonna talk the shit out of that anyways you guys get ready for this episode it is badass well as everybody knows i've had you on the podcast before I've had you on the podcast before we talked about a bunch of stuff. I think we talked about sex mostly on that one.
1: Yeah, and the book, and Loving Bravely, I think.
0: And Loving Bravely. For the people that don't know, I've recommended this book as a must-read. It is like an essential must-read of all building your relational awareness as you talk about. And so to further that, because I had a lot of conversations in the last couple weeks on my Instagram about boundaries, about getting over X's, and those types of things. So I wanted to explore the subject of boundaries first. Mm-hmm. And then what does it look like? What are they? How do you have good ones? What's the benefit of them? What's the cost of not having them? Yeah. So before I even tell the whole story, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, yeah, right. So just to get like a definition on the table, I mean, a boundary is nothing more than the space between you and me.
0: Mm. Sort of
1: how how we manage where you and I bump up against each other. And we internalize, like as we're little, all kinds of messages about about closeness and basically about closeness and distance. And we oftentimes talk about the spectrum from like a rigid boundary where nothing gets in and nothing gets out. All the way to like an absence of boundary where it's just like there's total porousness right and like i'm you and you're me and it's all kind of like mushy and murt. so we we try to like find some shade of gray between there but that's that's it's dynamic right it's dynamic it's squeaky
0: and know our chairs are squeaky
1: <laughs> it's dynamic it's changeable and sometimes like i think the most important thing with boundaries is we can kind of like elevate it like Sort of get perfectionistic about having good boundaries, yeah. And the thing is, sometimes it's like a trial and error process. Like, I don't know that you've violated a boundary of mine until you have, Mm. and now it's so it's like a constant, like course correction, you know. I think that's so you're pivoting,
0: is that what you mean? Like, it's it's um, it's like a dance,
1: like a dance, like feedback. Mm -hmm. Like, I have to be willing to say, come closer, back up, um, because it's because it's dynamic, and we may have like there's really interesting research about cultural stuff, like different cultures really have internalized different notions about how appropriate it is to sit, you know, like how far to be <laughs> from each other. That's definitely true. You know, like different parts of Europe versus Asia versus the U.S. There's gendered elements about like, just like literally about the physicality of how close to sit, when to touch,
0: how to, how to
1: touch. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cause I noticed when I, I remember being Canadian where we we're like, almost too nice in a lot mm-hmm. of ways we are the poorest person who gets stepped on and then we apologize for you stepping on us mm-hmm. um i noticed that when i was traveling and i was in europe and i had to catch a flight and it was first come first serve so i was in front of the line and people just freaking stood right in front <laughs> of me i felt my boundaries being totally yeah. but they were cultural because to them they were just doing what they do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i get that that makes sense
1: yep that's the stuff that needs to get worked out in relation in like an intimate partnership Mm -hmm. rather than being like, I'm right. And you're wrong. It's a conversation. Like, why? Like, what is, how do you know when I'm violating your boundary? How can you give me feedback in a way that I can hear, you know, that it becomes like the two of us shoulder to shoulder, figuring, figuring it out versus like foreclosing on that. Like you should have known Mm. and you're wrong and I'm right. You know, it needs to be more, conversational and exploratory, I
0: think. Does that come from, because I find a lot, of the, a lot of people have the expectation in love to be like, well, if you love me, you just get me.
1: Oh my God, right? right, right, right.
0: And so when someone does something that maybe they learned in their family, a violation of a boundary that to them was just normal in their family to violate whatever boundary that is. And then they step into an intimate relationship and it, well, if you just got me, you just know not to do that. And it's like, uh, I didn't know. So how do people know, well, first off, obviously exploring having that conversation, I love that you always talk about, um, instead of being against each other, like the problem sitting in between you, you're facing the problem side by side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that really shifts the whole idea of what a relationship is, that you're not trying to, you know, make the thing be right about the thing in the middle but really actually be right together yes yeah, yeah, yeah. and that yeah. was a huge shift for me when you talked about that because i even thought about it physiologically if you're side by side facing something like you're walking mm-hmm. it feels very different than being adversarial mm-hmm. yeah yep. so in the context of understanding when a by vi- a boundary has been violated how would someone know like how does someone know like how do they tune into that
1: i was just thinking about an example um of a couple from two different cultures
0: mm-hmm. and
1: they come together and they're married and they're it's their first experience of loss so one partner loses her dad and in her mind it's crystal clear how the husband ought to behave when he arrives at the funeral home like at the home of the of of the you know the the widow yeah okay and the and the cultural script is you walk in the door and you immediately greet the widow you don't even make eye contact with anybody else and so this husband walks in and does not greet the widow first because it's not his culture. Mm-hmm. And he's new at this. And, and his wife felt this massive boundary violation. Like, you don't get me. Like, you are boorish and you are rude beyond because you didn't greet my mom. You didn't greet my mom first. Like, how could you not have done that? It's one of those things where the it was so clear to her because it's a downloaded program yeah. that she grew up with, and it was, and so she knew her boundary was violated because she felt the rush of rage.
0: Uh, you know, so anger, anger is
1: good? can be, and the, you know, anger is like one of these emotions that really requires our like sculpting, right, and like working with it. What do you mean? Like the it's in its raw form, it's a pretty like non-relational experience right like just the raw rage
0: oh like like the aggressive yeah rather than
1: rather than like sculpting be like i'm so angry and i want to be mindful of how i you know like say this just like it needs to be kind of like crafted a little bit into something the other person can hear which is hard because anger and emotion is like no 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 you must say all of the things (laughs) right now
0: (laughs) well i found that that has definitely been um like my experience with anger was, I found my mom was often very sort of uh, her energy or her emotion felt uncontrolled. Mm-hmm. Not that she was overtly angry, but her energy was like chaotic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I was so afraid of anything that resembled that chaos. So I didn't know how to birth it within myself. Yeah. So it took a long time for me to even be able to breathe into flooding. Be able to give words to feeling so mm-hmm. overwhelmed, then being able to express anger not like a fricking pressure cooker like you're saying like, right I felt flooded, so then I'd let it all out but by then, I had already been so porous, my mm-hmm. boundaries were so porous mm-hmm. that by the time it came out it came out, no one would listen to me
1: right. at that point. <laughs> It was like there's a lot this is a lot yeah yeah, uh,
0: and it would be so much hurt that right. I couldn't.
1: The thing I want to bracket about what you're saying is I think it's so important to support men talking about their early experiences of their mom's emotionality. And I think we don't go there for so many reasons. Like I think it can feel deeply shameful to men about how much of their emotional world was shaped by how they experienced their moms. Like there's, I think a shame, there can be a shame about that or it can sort of feel like God forbid, like emasculating to talk about what it was like to be a little boy, face to face with your mom's big emotions. Yeah. But there's, I think that is, especially for men who go on then to partner with women, it can get really fuzzy, really fast. And that little boy who really didn't know how to handle an emotional mom gets activated and he takes the wheel. You know, and he can't do shit, right? He doesn't yeah, know. Yeah, my
0: little boy wasn't very good at the wheel.
1: No, <laughs> because he was a little boy. And and I think that, <laughs> but until you can, like, start to talk about that, um, it can't, you, know, you can't heal it and you can't figure out how to do anything differently. But I think there's a ton, I think there can be a lot of shame and silence about what it was. And I think this is also, like, a message for parents, too. Like, yeah. that whole importance of, like, mindful parenting. Like, just to know, to know for a woman especially to kind of be empowered enough to be aware that her big emotions to kind of see it through her kid's eyes. Yeah. It's a pretty scary thing to have an angry out of control mom.
0: Yeah. And uh, you know, even whenever I talk about her or my dad in the experience, because I love them so Mm -hmm. much Mm -hmm. and I felt like I had a good, you know, quote unquote, good childhood. So there's a part of shame that comes even when I shared that where it's like, Uh, if she listens to this, I hope she knows, you know, I, that's the under text, the subtext, sorry, that's coming through is like, I hope she knows I still love her and I know that she was in pain, but as a little boy, I really, um, and I don't want to make this about me, um, but as a little boy, I really wanted to like save her from those feelings. I didn't know I wanted to do that, but I see that role in my adult previous Mm -hmm. adult relationships.
1: Yeah. Well, I, well, first of all, I hear you on the whole, like use, I mean, the use of self is, like my use of self stuff has always been a part of my teaching. I think it's in part, we are, I think we're drawn to this. Anybody who is in the field of, you know, the stuff that we do, I think is drawn to it in part to heal our own stuff. And so Mm -hmm. there's a need, I think there's a need to be honest and authentic about that. But then there's this trickiness also about like honoring the boundaries of people who did not consent. My mom did not
0: consent (laughs) (laughs) to
1: me being part of this world. And so I hear you on that. Like I, I struggle with, um, how to be authentic and represent my early experiences in a way that honors, right, that my family, like, my attachment figures are on their own journeys and trajectories. And I'm so grateful that I get to keep recreating those relationships again and again and again now as an adult. And I think there's, like, healing that comes, right? Like, we heal the little boy and the little girl by getting a chance to kind of redo those relationships.
0: Well, yeah, sorry. Uh, and in doing that too, it's interesting because like through the healing of my relationship with Kai and previous relationships too, my relationship to my mom and with my mom has completely transformed.
1: Mm-hmm. Like
0: her emotionality is much calmer. She's much different with me, you know? Cause it's, and and so I think for the people listening, knowing that like the inner work you do is so powerful and shifting. And, and we were listening this morning to Terry Real talking about, the work you do to heal yourself as a hero within your relationship Mm -hmm. um, heals the next generations, which I was like, wow, that's so powerful to think of that.
1: Yeah. 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 I I just came from teaching my workshop and my mom um, traveled here to DC with me and she came to my workshop, which is always, it's so funny. Like she like literally made me and I still kind of feel funny about her okay. being in my workshop, you know? So she comes in, she like doesn't make eye contact. She sits in the back and kind of hangs out. And at the one hour mark, I don't give a everyone a break. I just kind of say like, if you need to just like kind of stretch. And so there's a little bit of stretching going on. My mom gets up out of her chair, walks right up to me. I'm like at the podium, walks right up to me. And she's like, honey, now what, what was Emily's last name? And it, I know that 10 years ago I would have been so like flustered and embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I felt like nothing but this like massive swell of love. Like, yeah. just like you are so cute. I can't even stand it. Like you that's went, so from, <laughs> it was really cute. But she went from like, I have to like take up no space to being like, excuse me, I'm going to stop all of this. This is my daughter. To ask you, <laughs> what was Emily's last name? <laughs> really and cute.
0: the fact that you, that's so beautiful. And the fact that you present uh, stuff about sex and your mom's yeah. kicking it in the back.
1: I had her cover her ears at one point.
0: You're like, mom, earmuffs.
1: Little mom. That's awesome.
0: I mean, I think in the context, too, like the coming back to the subject of boundaries, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. Um, in the context of, okay, so understanding what a boundary is, that space between us and another, understanding what it feels like when a boundary is crossed. So that's feeling of, uh, I don't know. And, and then how to establish a good boundary. I know you talked about, sorry, Uh, a rigid porous and but can you define what that that more Mm -hmm. looks like like the types of boundaries yeah
1: yeah so one thing before we do that we were talking about anger can be a like kind of a signal that a boundary is violated violated but I know for me I struggle with anger like it has to be it, it, things have to be really, really, really far gone for me to experience anger. I'm oftentimes late to anger. In fact, sometimes it takes my therapist being like, what the fuck is going on? And, go, and she's angry. And I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to. Like, okay. I should be angry And too. I'm angry, right? So it's very validating to kind of like see somebody else being angry. And then I'm like, oh, that's my cue. Okay. Um, so it's for those of us who kind of have that, like that's our last thing. It may be for me, it's like a subtle like a twist in my gut. Like for me, it's super physiological, it's located in my core, and it just feels like a twist. Like yeah. I'm saying yes, but my truth is no. That kind of a thing is when I know that somebody's encroaching on my boundary.
0: So you can feel like just, a, it's a body feeling? Yeah, mm-hmm. like, yeah. A little, like, a,
1: like a little like nausea. Or
0: yeah, that's a what twisty. I get. You do? Mm-hmm. I get a little nauseous. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know, I think I was so used to being a doormat that nauseous was just like, oh, I'm supposed to feel it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that it was the fact that I had absolutely, I didn't trust myself to protect myself. Mm-hmm. God, it's yeah. so, so unattractive too. Well. You know, you don't even realize like when you think the like the nice guy syndrome, this mm-hmm. idea that I'll be nice and then I'll prove to women that I'm different than other guys and that, but it's yeah. all such a manipulation at the end of the day, you know, and a couple-
1: And a heavy side effect of being in a patriarchal culture, like where you have to feel like you have to be not that. You know, yes. this sort of in a culture where many, many women have actually been victimized, then men feel like they have to just be not that. It's like this massive course correction that you're doing for harm you didn't cause. You know, it's, it's sort of like the neat, like that's why we're all in this together. Like we're all in this like reclamation healing work together because cause it's on all of us. Like you you can't, it's unfair to ask you to undo damage that was done by other men who are not you.
0: When do you think the other because I definitely found that a boundary felt controlling to me. And I, the last thing I ever wanted to do was be controlling because of what I, you know, read in the news about men and heard about men. Um, and, you know, if no one separates those thoughts for you or explains it for you, you, you filter it through your eight year old brain, which is I mean, sure, we're smart, but we're not good at doing those things. Um, do you think the female equivalent is that overt power then, or that overt independence? Like if I was very my boundaries were very porous, mm-hmm. would have f- the female response to patriarchy be to have more of a rigid?
1: I think so. Yeah, yeah. I love speaking of Terry Riel, because we should always be speaking of Terry yeah. real. I love when he describes personal empowerment versus relational empowerment, especially for women. So right, if the kind of like collective wound of patriarchy, For women is loss of voice. For men is loss of vulnerability. For women is loss Mm. of voice. Then the healing or the rebalancing is women coming into voice and being able to kind of advocate and say, "Uh uh-uh, not that. But we are at risk of like Mm overcorrecting. And and this is what he calls like personal empowerment. Like personal empowerment is no, not that. It's like tight, rigid control. Never again. No more. Uh Uh-uh, the buck stops here versus relational empowerment, which is I can talk to you about where the line is without putting you down. I don't have to make you wrong. Mm-hmm. I can stand next to you and be like this. Okay, here's the line. Here's why it is here. Here's how I feel when it's you know not honored. Like that, that is more of a feedback process rather than like a, what um, my young, my um, graduate students would call it like canceling. You know, like cance- just canceling somebody. Like just like <laughs> you cross a line, never again, you're out of my life. I never heard of canceling. Just like canceling people, it's just. I've like, heard of benching. What's benching?
0: That's where you put them on the bench, and you might pull them out later. Oh yeah, I think that's yeah. Do they call that something else? Maybe no
1: benching. Benching—that's uh-huh. a good For term. Sim- sim- I think simmering. Sometimes. We're
0: very good at creating these terms. I feel like it's a very mm-hmm. creative. Well, I didn't create them, but the people who did, unbelievable. So mm-hmm. canceling. So is that like it's not ghosting? So you, maybe no. you tell people they're canceled, but it's it's being like done.
1: Done. And sometimes you do need to be done. I'm yeah. Not saying that, but sometimes. I think women who are who are coming from disempowered to empowered, it's a process of learning how to be empowered without being rigid, without being controlling, without being manipulative, to stand up for myself without putting you down. Hmm. I think that's the journey.
0: And which is hard to do because often it comes from a place of hurt and then the only way we know how is to express it in this sort of explosive way. Right, right. Yeah, where it's reactionary.
1: Where it's reactionary. And where oftentimes, what couples, what comes along with it, is like, I'm just expressing my feelings.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> These
1: one. are just my feelings. Just my feelings doesn't mean I get to say whatever. I mean, you can, of course, but I talk. I try to frame it a lot as like effectiveness. Like, what's effective? How can I say it in a way that my partner can hear it?
0: You know. So, how do you deliver a boundary? Okay. So, sorry, coming back to that. So, the poorest boundary is allowing too much. Right. A rigid boundary is essentially like a, a wall. Yeah. And then a secure boundary. How do you define that? hmm
1: It's where I I think it's that I can stand. I'm I'm grounded in myself and I'm connected to you. Like ah. I know I feel me and I'm connected to you. Like I'm not either like abandoning myself, nor um, nor totally walling myself off. Sort of like this both of course a both and. Yeah. I can stand up for me and stay connected to you. That to me feels like a healthy boundary. And I can say no from a place of love versus fear. Like I can say no, not in order to control you, not in order to get my way with you, but just like a a, a loving no.
0: You talk about that in your book, that mm-hmm. like if you, I remember that part where you said, if you don't have the space to share with your partner what is okay and what is not, then your relation if you don't feel like you have a voice or you don't then your relationship is coming from a place of fear Mm -hmm. is that is Mm -hmm. that yeah Yeah. i think yeah and then it's as opposed to so a place of fear being just like people listening understand a place of fear would be like i'm afraid to tell you this because of how you might react or there's not a safe space or i've never done it before or no one's ever whatever it is as where a place of love to communicate that would be this idea of like being able to tell you what I need from you or what's okay or what's not mm-hmm. is actually telling you how to love me.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. And we've and then you've you've I think you know when you've hit a healthy boundary because you feel that heart opening. You know, uh-huh. like you feel like um, I was thinking about a colleague of mine who was talking about her in-laws visiting. Yeah. And in her mind, they stay way too long. They don't respect the boundary. They show up, they unpack like they don't know, you know. And so she, her work with her husband was to say, "This is where my boundary is." Whatever it was, five days, you know, or whatever the thing was. It's
0: pretty good. Five days. <laughs>
1: whatever it was. Yeah. And basically, what she was trying to titrate was the, the the healthy boundary was what she could articulate. And then when they walk in the door, she's this, right? Yeah. She's open hearted, like I am. So glad you're here, and she could say. I'm so glad you're here because she was able to say, this is the amount I can do. Because
0: she knew what her energy could handle. Yep. When was the goodbye going mm-hmm, to happen? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's so true because I, I was just thinking about what that might feel like if I was in her position as you were explaining yeah. it. And if I knew what I was committing to that felt good, mm-hmm. then I would be able to show up with the right energy and the right space. And am I spending 18 hours a day with him or am I like, yep. do we get pockets of in law long time?
1: Yes. Right. You know? Right.
0: -hmm. And I'm sure everyone has experienced uh, in-laws staying too long, even our own parents sometimes. And our own
1: parents, right? That's
0: right. Lots of love if you're listening, parents. I'm sure. And
1: then subtle stuff, like she also needed to be like, I. What what would really help me stay? It's like sort of like if we frame it like, what helps me stay Mm open-hearted? What would help me stay open-hearted actually is if you would kind of commit to whatever you know, whatever the things are, doing the grocery shopping ahead of time for their visit, or you know, whatever the things are. If it's guided by. What would what I need in order to greet your parents with an open heart is X, Y, and Z. I think that's versus you better and you don't oh, and you yeah. never and they're so and you're so and you know all of that kind of stuff just creates this big like dust bubble of dust. What would it be? Storm. Dust storm, where the thing that's getting missed is like I want to be open. I want to connect with you. I want to be open-hearted. And here's the thing that I need. It's a different means to the same end, right?
0: Well, and especially when you approach any sort of conversation, not just a boundary, but any conversation with your partner that is framed in a way that instantly puts them on the defense, you're not getting anywhere. Mm-mm. If they're spending their time defending themselves instead of listening right. and connecting to you, then you're not, not going to get a, there's no boundary happening. There's no. Yeah. The parents are saying extra time. If you do that, <laughs> they're going to be like, I need mom and dad longer. Right. You're being an asshole, you know? Um,
1: and that's where, and if it's a, if it's a heterosexual dynamic and the way we're saying, then if, if that's how she's setting it up, then she's at risk of judging him as being like an emotionally unavailable man.
0: Oh, yeah, good call.
1: When she was a co-creator of the situation that created his shutdown.
0: Which is, I get, you know, to even further get it, you taught me about this too, about that idea of vulnerability cycles. Mm -hmm. That that's really, and for people listening, if you don't know what those are, tell you. Mm -hmm. But it's this idea that, like, my so when do you want to frame it, or do you want to explain it? Yeah, sure. Yeah.
1: So, um, a vulnerability cycle, it was this is an article from 2004 that um, Mona Fishbane um, and Michelle Shankman wrote, which is that basically the, the big challenge with couples therapy is how do you hold on to the intrapsychic and the relational? Because both are happening all the time. And as a couples therapist, you got to figure out where you're going to kind of like angle your lens at any particular moment. And so this is a way of mapping out a couple's dance. So you can hold on to the me stuff, the you stuff, and the we stuff. Okay. And the idea is that you and I each have kind of a core wound, a vulnerability, a tender spot, an Achilles heel, the pitch we can't hit, you know, whatever that is, an abandonment issue. Like where we
0: never get past, essentially. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's it's the thing we sort of like scan the environment for evidence of, you know, and it tends to be, I'm going to end up alone, or you don't value me. You know, it's kind of like those central questions. Like, do you yeah. see me? Do you value me? Is what I'm experiencing making sense to you? Those kind of like central questions. And when we feel like our partner isn't seeing us or validating us, our vulnerability gets triggered and we respond to that with a survival strategy. Okay. The survival strategies are of two kinds, volume up or volume down. So either we get bigger, rageier, finger pointier, <laughs> lanier. Yeah. Or we get shamier, retreats, shut down, pull back. Yeah. And so, and it tends to be that, it tends to be that one guy tends to be more outward, and one guy tends to be more. And oftentimes, that's what happens. Like yeah. that sort of, their couple therapist call it like a pursuer-distancer cycle. Right? Yeah. And like if I'm the one that gets bigger, louder, blamier, that's at risk of making you defensive, and you're going to shrink back,
0: shrink back. So that would be my vulnerability and my survival strategy would be your vulnerability. right? So the, you'd be the peanut butter to my jam. Yeah, so to
1: speak. and it becomes like, it ends up being like the coolest magic trick of all because, because they're always, like when we partner with somebody, we always end up with interlocking, interlocking complementary vulnerability and survival strategy patterns, such that we it generates this dance. The more I do this, the more you do this, the more you do this, I do this. The more you hide, the more I yell. The more you yell, you know, just sort of like round. Yeah, it
0: just keeps going. Uh
1: It takes on a life of its own.
0: So, for the people listening, that is important to understand because when you think about what pisses you off by your partner, that's very often the very thing that you were pissed off by when you were young or hurt you when you were young. Pissed off might be the wrong word, but hurt you when you were young. And then you're what you figured out to do in response to that is the very thing that does it to your partner god it's so messed up when you think about it we're all such masochists
1: we really are we're like
0: you know what i hate i hate when people yell i love you you're a yeller you know this. it's like oh god uh-huh. okay so the way out of that because i think that's you know they're all sort of interrelated and i know we started talking about boundaries but they're all so right. interconnected that it's like, we wouldn't be in this subject if they didn't all sort of mesh together. Mm-hmm. So in the context of your vulnerability cycle, because of course people listening, it's like, oh my God, that's exactly what happens with us mm-hmm. or with my past partner. So how do you do? You kick the vulnerability cycle?
1: You speak from the vulnerability. You, you give voice to the vulnerability. I, I like to attach the phrase, The story I'm starting to tell myself is X. The story I'm starting to tell myself is that you don't respect me. You are going to let your parents stay forever. I'm going to disappear. Like you don't see me. I don't matter to you. um, And you don't have my back. That's the Mm -hmm. story I'm starting to tell myself. When when you won't give me an answer as to how long your parents are staying. Mm -hmm. When you roll your eyes when I ask that question. I start to feel all alone. I'm speaking from my vulnerability, which is my core fear is that I'm gonna be all by myself, that I'm that I'm actually crazy, that the things I want and need are crazy, they're too much. And so if I can speak from that place versus the behavioral pattern I slip into when I'm triggered,
0: which is the survival. Part. Yeah. Mm.
1: That's now there's like, there's nothing. I mean, I feel like I've never ever met a vulnerability that I can't like love the shit out of, right? Totally. Like, oh my God, people's vulnerabilities are the sweetest things. You just want to love them and treat them with care because they're, so tender. they're yeah. so tender. And like, that sucked that when you were little, you couldn't speak up about what was hurting you because whatever, your mom was in her addiction, your dad was whatever it was. Yeah. My God, I don't want to do that to you.
0: Yeah. And then it becomes you two against the challenge. Right. and with and taking and holding the vulnerability mm-hmm. and then of course like in that cycle when you step out of the survival strategy and step into your vulnerability you don't trigger their vulnerability you you connect to their vulnerability mm-hmm. yep. see right see, it's
1: passable guys It's so we can do, yeah. we can do it this only takes, like what you're saying is it only takes one guy to get their head up above water just a tiny bit yeah to make a, just enough of a shift that the other guy can code it because you're right you can't if I move my survival strategy back into my vulnerability, you can't stay in your survival strategy.
0: Really. That's true because I might wonder what the hell you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like, wait, we've been doing this for 15 <laughs> years. You never, ever put down your weapon. And mm-hmm. I've never done it either. And this is just our dance. And then we blow up and then we might break up and then we get back together. It's so not fun. It's so much more fun to have your vulnerabilities make love.
1: That's right. Right? that's right, that's right. And then I mean. you
0: could connect with sex that's not like post fight sex that a lot of people get a lot of high off of. Yeah. It would be like post deeper connective, you've made it past sort of your upper limit, because mm-hmm. that's where you turn it, take conflict and turn it into intimacy and more connection. Okay. Man, I think about like, if you've never been past that, your relationship's gonna like next level after that. That's right,
1: as you would say, your former ceiling becomes your new floor.
0: That's right, in blocks. I like that, yeah. Okay, so we've covered what they are, what they might look like, how it might feel if one's being violated. What is sort of the perfect, because you talked about the delivery of breaking the vulnerability cycle, which sounds like it could be a similar sort of language structure. Mm -hmm. But what is sort of like the perfect structure, if that exists, (laughs) let's just hope it does, Mm -hmm. um, of delivering a boundary? Right. Because I think about that and I'm like, hmm, okay. First, non-triggering language, like I feel, or in my experience, or my story. That yeah, yeah, doing. yeah,
1: yeah. I like that.
0: And then, how do you, like, how do you actually deliver it in a way that is non-triggering?
1: Hmm. I like all of that, and sort of like, can we look at this together? I'm struggling here. This isn't sitting well with me. We, I think, we have a problem. Around this. Like, I like that
0: because mm-hmm. they're all ways of being partners against the thing. The problem. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's beautiful in the context of relationship. So let's rock to the subject of boundaries with people you're not in romantic relationships so yeah, with. Yes, right. Because I think that's a big one. You know, I think it's challenging to have them with romantic partners, but we usually learned not having them from our parents, from our family. Mm-hmm. So I got a lot of questions about, okay, what about a boundary with like an ex? Because mm-hmm. I said this week that if someone has really hurt you, someone's really damaged you, someone's cheated on you, someone's, and you keep allowing access to them, then you're saying that they're – because you don't want to hurt their feelings. So you don't want to block them. You know? And I was like, go block people. Like cut them off. People got real. Well, what about forgiveness? What about – and I was like, listen, forgiveness is for people you're safe – to be in contact with. But forgiveness is not being in contact with people.
1: Right. You,
0: you don't have to. That, I think we often confuse being compassionate with tolerating behavior. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, OK, got to explore this a little more. Mm-hmm. So in the context of an ex, right. and let's say that you don't. They cheated on you. They weren't kind. They still don't respect certain behaviors. We end up you know, oscillating. Of course, we allow mm-hmm. too much. Mm-hmm. What is your thoughts on how to move forward through that?
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I have much, I have little to no tolerance for a story. I think I hear a lot of rationalization yeah. around the X that I have to keep in contact with, and we'll talk about co-parenting. Yeah, we're we got to kick that. I think sure. that really is maybe the only place. I mean, that's there. You of course have to figure out how the hell you're going to do boundaries. Yeah. But let's if we're talking about some situation where there's an ex and there's no need for further contact when I start to hear stories about why there needs to be little doors open, little access points, it sounds like rationalization and defenses against the thing that's really hard, which is to grieve. Yes. Grieving is hard. It is like a physical physiological process. Like we know that our brains code emotional pain, the same way they code physical pain. So grief hurts like Mm -hmm. literally is a painful physiological process. And so we do, I think sometimes these little Kind of dances in order to avoid the thing of that we don't want to do, which is grief. I think that's part of it. And the part of it, just I need to say, is it's legit harder to have be, just because of living in the digital age. It is. It's harder to close every single one of those oh, windows. I harder. just heard a story about somebody who still sees her exes like Venmo
0: stuff. Venmo, Something man.
1: About, like, yeah, because
0: your friend you connect with someone on Venmo as friends. Oh my god, which man that but you can defriend them
1: okay
0: see that's i'm sure you can i mean you should be able to disconnect see i think of it like this i'm like you i see the intellectualization that people do in order to not in order to not fully step into their voice because they're afraid because they've never really done that and who knew what the consequence was of having a voice as a kid and all those Mm -hmm. stories which i have so much compassion for yeah The other side of that, too, is they're so afraid to actually hurt someone because maybe they had to take care of someone's pain when they were young or whatever the pattern is. It doesn't matter. It's just that it exists. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, first off, when you make someone else's feelings not hurting them because of a block or a boundary, you're making your feelings less important than theirs. Mm -hmm. And if every time you look at their social media or even you unfollow them, but they're still following you and they're like, we really have to take this into context but I know when you get defriended on Facebook, it feels like someone really is breaking up your friendship. It feels because we can't separate digital experiences from real experiences. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it's like, listen, if someone's just an ex and you had an amicable breakup, you don't need to block them. That's fine. You do you. But if seeing their name in any way makes your body do the mm, yeah. twisty thing that you're talking about, yeah. that to me is like, block so that you can heal yes and you can even say to someone if you want to block them like in order for me to heal i need to not see your name yeah and that's for me and for my value and for taking care of myself and i care about you but i i got to do me first and that to me is like there's and and that's why i get like uh passionate for people (laughs) right because i'm like I want to fight for you. I agree. But you got to fight for you. But hopefully my passion and my pissed offness mm-hmm. will be like,
1: It's something about also like the digital language, like de-friending or blocking. Like it was something about just like neutralizing, you know, <laughs> yes. you know like closing the door or ha. moving along. Closure. Like, closure. If it was called closure. Right. Can I you closure someone? It, yeah, we take it so we, we. it feels like an act of violence of some kind when really it's it about... It's about hygiene, really. It's about digital hygiene. <laughs> you yeah. know, just going to clean up the space. It's the
0: tartar. Mm-hmm. It's the tartar. Yeah. and I actually really love that, because you're right. It is the language that feels very, because a lot of the comments I got when I said that yeah. uh, were like, that's harsh. No, that's, it's not. And I'm like, she, you know what's harsh? Leaving your little, ch- the child in you out to get grenaded, Leaving the child in that's you is. to take bullets. Leaving the child in you to get hurt. I'm like, who's going to, who has your back? I have your back, but I can't go press, I'll press block. You give me your phone, you bring your phone to my next event. I will block everybody that you want to block. I have no problem. Mm -hmm. But I think I get so passionate about it because I know what it was like to allow those things and to have been a doormat. Mm -hmm. And now that I've learned beyond that, which I'm always learning, so it's Mm -hmm. not like I'm a perfect boundary placer, because no, saying no is still, I'm like, no.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. No, no, tiny question mark?
0: <laughs> <laughs> totally. Where I like have left little caveats. That's why I know. Like you were saying, you hear the rationalizing and the intellectualizing. Yeah. yeah. So I think we made that point clear. <laughs>
1: um, I think we did too. But oh, I was gonna say if also I think if you're the one who is a little bit more taking the lead on the breakup, it can feel harsh. But maybe also maybe the reframe needs to be if you're the one who's like a little bit more ready to end the relationship then to really clarify the boundary is doing them a favor. Like, listen, I'm stepping away in order to support your healing. You know, like just- the, I that's love that. Kind of like just repositioning it as an act of grace. Um, it's so not harsh. Like it really is. That's it's, loving. That's seriously loving. I let you, I release you. Love and light.
0: I um, broke up with this girl maybe like four years ago and I would text her every once in a while after we broke up. And finally, she was like, "Why mm-hmm. are you contacting me? Mm-hmm. Who's like this for?" Yeah, she was like, "I don't want to talk to you," and she was like, "I'm, you're nice and all that mm-hmm. shit, but I don't want to talk to you." And I realized that the only reason I was contacting her was because I was afraid she was hurt. But in doing that, I kept re-exposing her for my own heal- for my own soothing that I wasn't a dick or that right. I, you know, the beliefs I created about myself because I needed to break up with someone, which is. Mm -hmm. a normal part of life Mm -hmm. but I did it was like oh I hurt someone who am I the fact that I could step into this relation you know all those things so for people who are maintaining contact with the exes that you ended things with I love what Alexander said there which is like lovingly create the boundary that they are not capable of creating
1: totally right
0: that's a that's a next level of integrity that is totally integrity right such integrity Hmm? because we knowingly know they would get back. if you know that your ex would get back together with you in an instant and you're still in contact with them no, then that's not fair
1: no i think that's a good cool. test that's a really good te- that's a nice one those like gut checks and once you know that you can't unknow it once you see that you can't uh, see that for
0: all of you that your stomach just went uh, yeah you better fucking step up on that up, up okay, page. so co-parenting, because I, I want to close on that. I don't want to leave that out because a lot of people were asking me, but what about if you share a child with this person who's an asshole or right. unkind or manipulative? Right. It's a tough one.
1: It's a tough one. And here is, I think to me, one of the most important points is it's the both and. Somebody can both be a shitty partner to you and an adequate parent to your kid. Those things can coexist. I think sometimes we are at risk of a a triangle, me, my ex, and my kid, and I play out my unhealed shit with my kid. I see, I I sort of act as if the way my ex treats my kid, I have to stand up for my kid the way I couldn't stand up for myself or the way nobody stood up for me. So it gets really muddy. And so that idea that my ex can be, could have been awful to me but can also be a decent parent to my kid is super duper duper that duper. That must important. be
0: hard to live in that split. Mm-hmm. I'm not a parent, um, but I would imagine that's very hard to live in the split of the pain of the disconnection and the breakup, maybe infidelity, maybe maybe right. they have, maybe they started dating the person they cheated with,
1: and now that person is the step parent, and now that person
0: picks oh, up the kids. Sometimes I just
1: like I bow to you because that is some next level grace you
0: You have have to to be like an emotional jedi Jedi. (laughs)
1: yeah that's right right.
0: so how does one okay so i i think we need to like break this down into chunks okay so the first chunk which i love that you said because i never thought of that of this triangulation that's created of i'm going to protect my child from what i never protected myself from even though my child isn't at risk of the same thing like they're a good parent but they're a shitty partner yep Okay, but how do we? Because you know, in the context of saying blocking them on social media, but I can't do that. They're the parent. They're my co-parent, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I don't have a child. But my response to that was, you can still block them. Oh, on social, on social media. media? Yeah, you, you can have, say I need this separation.
1: Yes, you have one channel of communication: a text thread or whatever it is, a weekly phone call, or something that is very, very no. There's no reason that even if you're that's, that's a the rationalization. Yes. <laughs> So and it's sneaky. I mean, I'll oh. get down, I'll get down a rabbit hole and be like, wait a minute. You got me, you know, like it's because the, that stuff feels, it feels really compelling, but no co I think that effective co-parenting, you can have a channel of communication. You can have a boundary around what we communicate about. I think one of the things, one of the growing edges can be like, it's a very heterosexual example. Well, it doesn't need to have a heterosexual. If you've had a couple where one was clearly like the main parent on point and the other was a bit more removed, Yeah, it can be very, very difficult for that parent who is on point to say goodbye to their child, let the child go to the other parent's house and know that they're not going to receive the exact same kind of care yeah. because that parent now is going from having been parent number two to parent number one and that's a process. Like a new single parent who wasn't an on point parent is on a learning curve about how to do minutiae that their ex had always been in charge of and that's a, a process and a coming into one's own and an identity and it takes time
0: that's got to be a challenge for both people there because one the identity of i'm the sole parent and you've just been going to work and providing mm-hmm. which is not to downplay that role all. of course no. um but i think we can get into that mode where we're like you haven't even been around mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden now our identity is we have to share this role and for the person who now has to take on the role. My gosh. So some of the things that I read of other parents commenting and giving suggestions. One was one person said uh, I created a separate email that was just for contact with my ex. And that way it didn't pop up on my phone and I only had to check it when I wanted to and when there was something that was time-sensitive. That's good. Isn't that brilliant? Jedi. And everything else was not, uh, the boundary was you do not contact me or follow me on any other way. The second one was um, that in the initial part of their divorce, they're amicable now, but in the initial part of their divorce, family would bring, or friends would be the the Mm -hmm. in-between, between between the kids, uh, like taking the kids and dropping them off. I thought that was... um, Probably in a very challenging breakup, but that is beautiful that these, if you ask for the support, friends and family are, we're like, and that might not be an option for everyone, but friends and family were like, yeah, we got you till you got you.
1: Yeah. And that's a bit of, that's a bit, so that's, I love that solution. I love that. And I love that whole, it's just the village. It really does. But if that's not, as you're saying, it's not possible, there may just need to be some trial and error around how those transitions, I'm, I'm the kid of divorce and those transitions are freaking brutal. My brother and I would have the worst behavior on the Sunday nights when we would come home. We, were, we would go to our dad's house every other weekend and come back to our mom's house on Sunday evening. Sunday evenings, we would be like in the bathroom, like spraying the water picks at each other. Like our behavior on Sunday nights was out of control. And it was because of just the really hard stir that comes from the coming and the going. And so that's I think it's so important for parents to have the support they need to not take that personally to not be reactive to kind of like hold space for a kid to kind of settle back into this house feels different than that house does like it's super helpful yeah
0: and i think i guess i i the majority of the people who expressed any of the pushback about yeah. blocking or withdrawing, i mean it wasn't so much about blocking as much as unfollowing right in those contexts but if your partner cheated on you or they whatever left you and it's so painful, but then it's like, but I, how do I navigate that and share a child? And I think that real solution is curating one channel yeah. and one type of behavior that you can hold till you can, cause you were saying boundaries are flexible, they're right. movable. So you could say, I don't want to talk to you. I only want to communicate via email and dropping the kids off till I'm ready to move to the next level.
1: That's right that's right It's a, right that's right it's a chapter it's a chapter in a larger story because the pain is not going to be what it is in year one or year two so the other things i um so my a colleague of mine jay lebeau who's like one of the big giants in the field of um, couple and family therapy just wrote a book with the american psychological association called treating the difficult divorce and it's yeah. a book for clinicians but i'm like and then you're going to write this for the general audience right yeah. he's really brilliant on this stuff. And two things I've learned from him are the vast majority of kids have initial post-divorce emotional and behavioral problems that smooth back out within a couple of years. The subset of kids who do poorly over time are the ones whose parents stay entangled in this parental alienation stuff, turning one against the other stuff. Um, Those are the kids who end up suffering. It's very clear. And the other thing I learned from him is that if a parent really prevents their kid from seeing the other parent, that sort of parental alienation stuff, there is a very good chance that fast forward the tape and the kid is gonna go the other way around. The kid is gonna cut off the other
0: one. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. So the kid learns the behavior from the parent, but then punishes that parent, the one who alienated the other parent from them.
1: And oftentimes the the parent who's doing it is saying, listen, Johnny does not want to come to your house. Johnny does not want to come to your house. And that's what sort of is like the cutoff happens at the kid's request. But just knowing that when you kind of do stuff to foster that, it's a pretty good chance it's going to at some point in time then come around back on you. And then Johnny's not going to want to come to your house.
0: Which is interesting because you think of it like in the context that when they do that, it's almost like, huh, I'm going to punish you. But it's through like Johnny doesn't want to see you. I don't either either look what you did, you know. pay the price. But that's when our shit is showing up in our childhood, sh- or is showing up in our parenting. Mm-hmm. And again, I say this with such uh, love because I'm not a parent. I, um, so, I am
1: a parent and I say it with 100% love because this is so hard. It's so hard.
0: Oh my gosh. And And I think about, and I've worked with people who are in the situation where, their parenting and their partner is with someone who ch- they cheated yeah. with. Oh, sure. And what was fascinating is as soon as the people that I've worked with that have been in that do a clearing with the other person, the, the, the other one. Yeah. So that they can get their stuff out of the way as best you can. Right. Cause it's like, I don't want to see you. I don't want to talk to you till I can. I need an apology from you. I need this from you in order to be in the best interest of raising my child. Sure. Because I don't trust mm-hmm. you. And why would I trust you? Yep. And that like, it needs to be expressed so we can put the, the teaching the children, what is positive, mm-hmm. what is adulting. Right. Right. Like I was thinking about, cause you, you know, you often hear and just, I guess sort of close just to be mindful of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was thinking about when we think, cause I hear a lot and I had friends go through this where their parents stayed together for them. Family is filled with high conflict. Uh, and when they find out that their parents stayed together for them, they're like, fuck, fuck, we knew. Like, just right. break up, like, screw you for putting that on us. And so yeah. I was thinking about the sort of, like, ideal to the least ideal, like, family situation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the ideal is parents who get along, who are together with their kids. Parents who aren't together who get along mm-hmm. and be are kind And treat their kids well. Parents who are together and hate each other and treat each other like shit, and then parents who aren't together and treat—I think those are equal. Actually, parents who aren't together and treat each other like shit, and parents who are together and treat each other like shit, those two are actually the least positive. I
1: agree.
0: Because by staying in a very high conflict relationship, you're teaching your kids to stay in high conflict, and then it's okay, and that's love, and that's stick through it, tough it out. So there's so many what do you think about that
1: I, t- I totally agree I yeah I agree I was like noticed like I was tracking my reaction to that And I think I would want to equate those final two and not be able to like make a better or worse around yeah. those because it's, it's really hard to watch your parents trash each other because you are part of each of them right even if you're an adopted child you are part of each of them and that's the most painful thing is to feel like your loyalty is split and that you can't be wholly in love with each of your parents the way that kids are desperate kids desperately want to be able to love the crap out of each of their parents that's our default setting and so that's the place from which it's really important to figure out how do you neutralize enough that you don't have to trash that other person for the sake of for the sake of yeah your for your sake of your kid
0: yeah I like to hold those words so that you don't teach your kids something else Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. so i guess in the just to i guess close off is have you seen in your experience couples go from a divorce with maybe not as good communication you know obviously they divorce so that would be a good sign um to amicable co-parenting with lots of success i do think so yeah
1: i think it's hard to do without therapy
0: yeah to go get some support through that process yes
1: I think therapy is essential, not
0: optional. I agree. Because someone who can help you navigate the communication, the structure the boundaries, translate all the emotions that are going on, yeah. help express the anger.
1: Yeah. And a therapist who, and most therapists do, who really think systemically and relationally, because a ther- I, I would want to be cautious about a therapist who is just solely in your corner. Yes. I want a therapist who can think about the entire ecology of the family. There was um, one of the founding fathers of family therapy is this guy named Naj. He's got a very long last name, but we call him Naj. And he talked about multilinear partiality, which means we we can hold all of the parts of the system in warm, positive regard. So I I would want, even if the therapist is just working with one X, right, that's the only client's individual therapy, I want that therapist to be able to kind of hold in warm regard all the parts of the system. So advocating for the advocating for the client, but not at the expense of everybody else.
0: Yeah. Which is, would, the, would you recommend them seeing someone who's separate from each individual first?
1: Yeah. There are therapists who can, you know, I think you can do post-divorce couple therapy yeah. where it really is just about co-parenting. That's a really nice way of doing it. So I've one definitely no Yeah, that. for sure.
0: And it's helped process so much of the stuff in their relationship, yep. like the ones that I know. Um, okay. Amazing. Where do people find you?
1: DrAlexanderSolomon.com.
0: And your book loving bravely Mm -hmm. crushes. It's so good. It helps. Uh, What I love about it is it is consumable language that is um, distilled in a way that is so relatable and easy for people to like, if you've never read a relationship book, if you've never even looked at your relationship story, if all the stuff we're saying today, you're like, what the hell, what my child, what Alexandra's book goes through boundaries. It goes through everything. And you do write out your relationship story. You think about your family. Actually, there's some really cool questions that she gives you to talk to your parents about. I love that. I did it with my parents. It was so beautiful. Um, So check her out there. She also posts all the time on Instagram. And um, she has a new book coming out, which I will obviously share with everybody. So you don't have to worry about looking for it. You will get it in your inbox. And anything we talked about today will be linked in the show notes. Uh, I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for the work you do and just for being such an amazing human. That was really fun. Thank you. It was so fun.